Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Thomas, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here and um, to see you all at that late hour um, here for my talk. I'm going to talk about um, arrangements of convenience on drugs, security, conflict, crime in Colombia's borderlands. And as you just heard from Thomas, this was um, what I did in my PhD, where I focused on, and I've expanded on that, and um, I try to yeah, take that a bit further and, and, and talk about this today. Now, this is a topic um, that is not only relevant to Colombia, just to put this in a bigger context. Basically, what we see in many different um, fragile settings is that there's not just conflict, but there's also crime. So what we often see that civil war gets blurred with organized crime and the, the actors involved um, as well. So this is something in Colombia, where I did my field work, but if you think about other places like Afghanistan, um, you see that as well, where you have transnational organized crime and conflict in places like um, um, the Great Lakes in Africa, um, in Syria today as well. So it's really something where I start in Colombia, but it can be applied to other areas as well, and I'm going to talk about that um, later. <coughs> What I want to focus on is really these areas where the, these different kinds of actors, so you have conflict actors, rebel groups, paramilitaries, state forces, but then you also have criminal actors, um, drug cartels, organized criminals, and they are all present in the same territory. Now, what we often see there is that there's not only fight, they actually often cooperate with each other. And this is where we're puzzling if we think about the literature. So usually, according to the civil war literature, um, we hear that ideologically opposed groups, they would fight each other, but then what we see on, on the ground is that they often also cooperate with each other. Another point that we see often in the literature, and here um, Status Kalivas is one of the main um, scholars, is that different conflict actors, they strive for territorial monopoly, so they try to control a certain territory. However, what I saw in my fieldwork and what we see in other places is that often different actors, they share territory, so they are present on the same territory and they don't care about the territorial monopoly. And then thirdly, what we would also um, accept, um, expect sorry, if we think about um, organized criminals, the mafia literature, is that these actors would try to reduce costs, especially if they're economically motivated, <coughs> but then what we see is that they often invest um, a lot of resources in this fight and they don't care really about, about these costs. So there are certain things that are really puzzling when we think about how these different types of actors are present in the same territory. But still, what we usually do is we just look at, for example, how civil war actors, how rebels fight against the state, or how criminals cooperate um, among each other, but we don't really look at these different types of actors. Now what I'm saying, and what my main argument is today, is that if we want to understand what it means for the local population to live in these territories, we have to look not only at the presence of these actors, but really we have to try and understand how they interact with each other and why would they sometimes share territory and why would they sometimes cooperate with each other because only then we understand what this means um, for those people who live in these areas, so the security um, implications. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, talk about three um, main points in order to explain the security impacts of these what I call arrangements of convenience among these actors. And the first one is that um, if there's no arrangement, so basically if they fight each other or if there's just tense calm, it means that there's lots of violence, but it also means that often there are clear rules of behavior, and I'll explain that um, in a bit. The second point is that if there are short-term arrangements, which means that there's um, quickly shifting alliances, um, fragile alliances that break down um, occasionally, it means that there's selective violence, or so not large-scale violence, but there's a lot of uncertainty among citizens. And then finally, the third point is, if there are long-term arrangements, 
which means um, that the different actors, they have stable relationships, they might have strategic alliances, um, they might engage in a kind of preponderance relation. This means that um, violence, um, physical violence, is usually um, less visible, but what we see is what I call shadow citizen security and shadow citizenship, and I'll explain that later. So just remember these three points um, that I'm going to talk about in the talk. So as mentioned before, this is based on Colombia's border areas. Can you see the map? Or do we have to switch off the light? That's fine. Okay, good. Um, so what you see here is the, the highlighted areas is where I um, carried out my fieldwork. So I spent about a year <coughs> in these border areas um, in order to do interviews. I did 433 interviews with ex-combatants, with traffickers, with military police officials, but also with victims, refugees, displaced people, um, civil society leaders. So I tried to cover all the different perspectives in order to understand what's actually happening <coughs> in these areas. Now, why did I focus on, on these border areas? Basically, um, because this is what is the most attractive site for all these different kind of actors. So on the one hand, it's attractive for the Colombian conflict actors. So you know there's an armed conflict in Colombia right now. They've peace talks, but the different groups are still there. There's a major group, the FARC, rebels, the ELN, and they use these border areas as a site of retreat. They use it also for their supply. For example, when they need arms, they traffic them um, from the neighboring countries into the, um, into the country. Um, so they use it as a kind of financing area where they get their supplies and where they also organize um, logistics. Now, these areas are also very important for criminals groups. Um, especially those involved in the drug trade. In these border areas, um, this is where most of the coca cultivation um, um, has been pushed to um, over the last few years. Um, it's also um, the place where we see laboratories to process the coca leaves into cocaine. And these areas also comprise the major starting points of the international trafficking routes. And now I don't have this laser pointer, and here's a cable, so I can't really point there, but it's on the left side um, at the Pacific Ocean. This is the starting point um, for the trafficking route via Mexico or um, Central America to the US. And then in the north, at the border between Colombia and Venezuela, the Caribbean, this is around the starting point of the trafficking route also to the US, but also via West Africa um, to Europe. So many different actors have a huge interest in being present in these areas. Now, choosing these border areas is also simply in terms of practicality. So if you think about other contexts in Syria, there are thousands of different groups. Um, the Carter Center, they counted up to 6,000 different violence groups in areas like the Great Lake region, in Africa, DRC Congo, um, and Uganda. There are over 50 groups. Now, in that area where I was, I counted about 20. So it's more manageable. <laughs> and it's hard enough, it's complex enough, but it's more manageable to, to, to work in these areas if you want to understand um, what happens, what are the interactions between these different groups. So this is where I carried out the field work. Um, and just to give you a better idea, um, I never really stayed very long in one place, um, so I use ethnographic methods, but I'm, my PhD was in development studies, my background is IR, so I'm a bit of a hybrid, but it's not pure anthropology. This is the, the red line is um, along the Colombian-Ecuadorian um, border, so this is kind of my itinerary, where I went to all the different villages, where I talked to people, um, both on the Colombian side, um, in the north and in the Ecuadorian side as well. Then in the other border area, so this is the Colombian-Venezuelan border area in the south. Um, so this is Arauca, Colombian Arauca. 
and Venezuela and Apure. And here again, the red um, lines, this is the itinerary. And I, in some areas, there, there aren't roads, so you have to go on, on the river. So I passed um, through all these villages. Then a bit further north, this is Catatumbo, not the Santander on the Colombian side. And in Venezuela, it's Tachira. <coughs> here, I often went with, um, with the UN as well, because in some areas, it was too difficult to, to get into. So I went with diplomatic missions there. And then also in the north, La Guajira and Zulia. Um, again, this is kind of the itinerary. And I always try to be on, or I was on both sides of the border, so not only the Colombian side, but also the non-Colombian side. And this is very important because in these places where conflict and non-conflict settings blur, this is where we see most of these interactions between criminal actors and, and conflict actors on both sides. So there are also conflict actors from Colombia on the non-Colombian side. Now, what I then did with all the material, the information that I had was I tried to map where are these different groups. And what you can see here, again, that's the Colombian-Ecuadorian border area. Um, you see that each color represents a different group. Now, this is just a snapshot. It's constantly changing. And this was about 2011, 2012. Now it will probably look completely different because they're moving. It's very dynamic. But this is just to get an idea of how this actually looked like. And as you can see, the presence of these groups is overlapping. So what I did then was I tried to find out where there's overlapping presence, how do these different group, um, groups interact, and that's what I labeled with numbers. So each number represents a different kind of relationship. Um, and they are listed at the bottom. You don't have to read all of them. This is just to give you an idea of how this um, looks like. I did the same for the, um, for the other border area, for Colombia and Venezuela. Again, there are even more groups, and this goes from the rebel groups, the Colombian rebel groups, over the right-wing groups to, um, to the smaller drug trafficking groups. There are also places where Mexican cartels are present, um, just to get an idea of where they are and how they interact with each other. And this is what I needed to know what this means for security for people on the ground. So how can we explain how these different groups interact with each other and how can we make sense of that? Now, what I found is that it's not enough to only look at the conflict literature, and this is what most scholars do when they work, especially on, on Colombia, because it's this armed conflict setting. But I found because there are criminal groups as well, because there are smaller um, groups, um, there are youth bands, there are also drug cartels, we have to go beyond the conflict literature. <coughs> so what I try to do is look at, well, how do we actually understand how different social actors cooperate with each other? And here I used three main bodies of literature. The first one is... Um, cooperation among states. Now this is because if we look at states, we can look at the context of quasi-anarchy. There's no central government that regulates the interactions. I mean, today you might say, well, it's the UN, but still it's not this one single government. And this is the same if we look at different violence groups. They regulate themselves. There's not this single government or regulator that would regulate these um, relationships. The other literature that is really helpful is literature on mafia, and here I draw Diego Gambetta, um, um, Federico Ravese as well. And this is because the mafia groups, they operate in the context of illegality. There's no legally binding contract um, between the different groups, and this is the same if we look at how rebels might cooperate with parliamentarians or drug cartels. So it's always this context of illegality. And what this means is that mistrust is very important. If you don't have a legally binding contract, it means that usually what prevails is mistrust between different groups. And what they try to do in order to cooperate with each other is reduce mistrust. So it's less about 
establishing a trust relationship because you usually can't trust anyone. It's more about reducing distrust for a specific um, deal, but I'll come back to that as well. Then finally, the third um, body of literature is um, the one on organized criminals, so not just mafia, but also other groups. And here it's very useful to think about the parallels that exist between them and the illicit business world. So how do also companies, how do they um, cooperate with each other through subcontract relationships, through joint ventures, um, because this is very important if we look at the business deals between different um, violent groups as well. So this then helped me to establish a typology of the different arrangements, and I just quickly um, outlined that because it's important to know that for looking at the security afterwards. <coughs> so what I did was I established these three main clusters, so don't worry about the, the subcategories um, within these clusters. The absence of arrangements, and these are the key points that I mentioned at the beginning. Second one, short-term arrangements, and third one, um, long-term arrangements. Now, if we want to understand how these different arrangements um, emerge, we have to look at how do these different groups reduce the mistrust. As I said, there's a context of illegality, and somehow they manage to reduce this distrust and then cooperate with each other. Now, if there's no mechanism, it means they either fight each other or there's a constant tense, calm, where the fighting might erupt at any time. But sometimes um, different groups, they share certain interests, economic interests, and this is when they start to engage in the short-term arrangements, um, in a tactical alliance, in spot sales, in barter agreements, for example, where different groups might exchange drugs for arms um, because they have the same interest in that um, specific deal. Another um, distress-reducing mechanism is personal bonds. So when two gang leaders um, get along well, this is the reason for them to engage in alliance. It can also be um, personal bonds with a third party, kind of broker, and this is what we often see in the cocaine supply chain, where there is one group, for example, in charge of the coca cultivation, or controlling, um, supervising coca cultivation, another group in charge of the processing, and yet another group in charge of the, um, the tr transport or the international trafficking. Now what happens in between these different links is that often there is a mechanism that kind of connects the different links in the supply chain. And these are brokers, the ones, um, the third party, that make sure that the different groups can kind of overcome this problem of distrust because they trust this broker rather than the other group. So this is how a third party um, reduces the trust gap in a way. And then what we have towards the right side is values, shared values. So this is, for example, when two groups share um, a similar ideology, two rebel groups, for example, FARC and ELM, they are more likely to engage in a stable, long-term relationship because they share certain values in other contexts, not in the Colombian one, but in others it might be um, religious, religious beliefs um, that are shared. So this makes it very stable. And then finally, power, and this is really when one group is more powerful than the others. The other ones are subordinated. Again, this produces a more long-term, stable relationship. Now, why do we know about this? Why do we have to know about this if we want to understand security? Well, mainly because we still have this distrust. And if we want to understand what it means to live in such a context, it's important to know whether people can trust the groups, whether people know um, how to behave in this context, whether people know what are the strategies to reduce insecurity, and what are the strategies to comply with the rules of behavior that might be imposed um, by the different groups. So this is just a, the background to the security implications. So what I then did was trying to find out are there any patterns that we can see across um, different arrangements, both in the Colombian Ecuadorian and the Colombian Venezuelan um, border area? 
And here, when I look at impacts on security, um, I don't mean just the physical security. So often analysts, they focus on um, objective, what we call objective facts of security. For example, homicide rates, displacement rates, and this is how we count and how we map um, insecurity in different countries. And I think we have to go beyond that, and we have to add to that also perceptions of security. So sometimes um, homicide rates might be low, but people are still scared. They still fear it's different for people to live in a context where they've known violence for a long time and they're kind of used to it, or in other contexts where it's something new and people are very scared about it. So there are two things. One is perceptions um, of security and the other thing is facts of security. <coughs> I'm looking at both. It's also important to think about that in terms of um, citizenship. And here I don't mean the legal context. I really mean this relationship between the state and society, so the social contract, because security is part of that. So on the one hand, the state has the responsibility, the obligation to protect its citizens, um, to provide services, governance functions, and on the other hand, you have a society citizens who might um, comply with certain rules um, imposed by the state and who also engage in, in security policies. And what happens if the state is not there to do that, um, then this function might be replaced by violent monster groups. So there's a shadow governance or shadow citizenship where you have that relationship not between the state and society, but between a violent non-state group and society. So this is what I refer to when I, when I call it um, shadow citizen security because they might still provide services and people might still support these groups and shadow citizenship because you have this mutually reinforcing um, relationship. Now let's start with the absence of arrangements and I'd like to give you some examples of what this actually means on the ground because right now it's rather abstract. So this is a quote um, of someone I interviewed on the Ecuadorian side of the border. And he said, you always have to be careful because talking openly about the paramilitaries or the guerrillas produces risks. It's not that we don't talk about this, but only with caution and certain norms because we are in a conflict zone. Now this is in Ecuador, right? In Ecuador someone says we are in a conflict zone. But what you can also see here is that um, there are certain rules, so violence might be high, but they know who are the parameters, who are the guerrillas, who they should talk to and who not. I don't say that this means that there's no violence, but at least there are certain rules um, that people can adhere to in order to, to protect themselves, to, to reduce the violence. Now this is different if there's violence um, among two rebel groups. What you can see here um, are statistics from Arauca, which is one of the most affected um, departments in Colombia by, by the conflict. And here, um, there's presence of both rebel groups, the FARC and the ELN. And what happened there was that between 2006 and 2010, there was a war between the different um, guerrilla groups, the two guerrilla groups. So where we think, well, they are, have similar ideologies, they should cooperate, um, they have similar goals. What happened there was that actually both um, FARC and ELN, they, they fought each other. And what you can see is that during that guerrilla war, um, um, the displacement rates went up, homicide rates went up, so there was more um, physical violence in a way. Now, if we only look at the numbers again, this is what we see, but what was really more striking to me when I was there and talked to people was that it simply changed the complete, their complete um, worldview, because to them, before the guerrilla war, they knew who was on the ELN side, who was on the FARC side, and then who was on the state side and who was fighting each other. Now, when that changed, suddenly it was not clear anymore who's supporting whom. Before, as long as you supported any of the two guerrillas, you kind of know, knew who to talk to. But then when they started to fight each other, 
it didn't really make sense anymore because they were used to the state on one side and guerrilla on one side. But then through that guerrilla war, the state forces also trained forces with, not officially, but in, in a way, with one of these um, groups in order to fight the other one. So it got all mixed up, which means it's less clear what are the rules of behavior. Now in that same region, in Arauca, a few years, years later, um, when I was there, this was in 2012, um, there wasn't any um, guerrilla war anymore, um, but there was still this constant um, tension. So here, for example, what you see is are graffitis of um, FARC, um, of the ELN as well, so they are both still present, but they didn't openly um, fight each other anymore. Um, however, there was also presence of some of the Bakrim, the post-demolized groups that came in. There was no open fight between these groups, but there was this constant sense of tense, calm, of tension, because people didn't really know what, when violence might erupt, what might happen afterwards. And what people were telling me when I asked them, so how's the situation now? How do you feel about security? They would say, well, it's as bad as, um, as during the guerrilla war. Now, if we look at the statistics, that's actually not true, because in 2012, there were less homicides, there were less displacements, so the physical violence situation was much better. But according to the perception of people, it was still as bad as during these years, simply because they had this constant unease, the constant fear, because they were not sure when something might happen and when not. So this just shows how important it is to look at both perceptions and also at facts of, um, of violence. Another case is um, when we see the absence of an arrangement in urban areas. So until now, these were more the rural areas, rural communities, smaller villages. Um, but this also happens in, in places like Kokuta, which is what you can see on, on the pictures here, um, when there are several groups and um, they don't have an arrangement, they don't cooperate with each other. So in Kokuta, um, until about um, 2011, it was mainly dominated by the Rastrojos, which is one of the groups um, that mostly merged after the um, demobilization of the paramilitary organization, OOC. Um, but then afterwards, in 2011, the Uravenius, another group, came in and they started to fight each other. Now, in that case, this was not in uniforms. Um, it was usually kind of mingled among civilians. Um, it was very important because it's strategic for the truck trade, and this is what you can see on the map there. So Cucuta is located next to the border um, to Venezuela, and usually the drugs go through that area if they want to leave the country, if they go to Venezuela. Um, the precursors go from the heartlands of the country to that area um, because this is also <coughs> where laboratories are. So this is very strategic location. and This is why several groups fight um, over that location. What you can see on top is um, um, maleteros, so those who smuggle not necessarily drugs but also simply normal goods that you can see there. Here you see um, gasoline, which is usually traffic from the Venezuelan side to the Colombian side. So it's a very important hub for many different forms of organized crimes, but also smaller, simply like everyday um, smuggling or trading, however you would like to call that. Now here, when the, when the Uravenos came in, um, bef well, before that, everyone kind of knew who the Rastrojos were, that they were dominating the city, you knew where to go to, where not to go to, but then when the Uravenos came in and when this fight started, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of who you, who you can trust, who is um, part of the network, the Uravenos started slowly to eliminate the network of informants of the Rastrojos, so you never knew when you said something wrong, maybe this might have um, consequences in terms of 
um, these networks of informants, of messengers, and there was this constant uncertainty. So in that case, it's not that clear what the rules of behavior actually are. Now then the final case is when there's no violence at all, and this is um, an example here of Ocaña, which is also not the Santander um, at the border to, to Venezuela. When I was there, um, there were about 100 days without any homicides. So I talked to um, government officials, to the local authorities, and they were quite proud that actually security has improved a lot, there are no homicides, and the situation is much better than before. However, what this really was was um, what I call tense calm, and this is because many people call it tense calm. So there's still presence of these groups. There's no open fight, but it might erupt any time. And what happened shortly after I was there, one week after it actually, um, they started to distribute pamphlets like this one, where they threaten a certain list of people, where they say if they don't leave um, the, the city, they might be killed, where they threaten certain people with certain behaviors. Um, <coughs> So this is something not only in, in Okanya, it's in other places as well. But this is how it slowly started, and then people started to be killed, and then suddenly the fight erupted again. So it's this tense calm where we don't see any violence, um, but it might erupt any time because there is no such arrangement um, between different groups. Now I'd like to come to the second key point on the short-term arrangements. So the first one is really um, there's general mistrust um, either there's open fight, there's kind of targeted rivalry in the urban areas, or there's this tense calm and <coughs> might erupt any time. Now in the second um, cluster, this is where we see short-term arrangements. So where there's fragile alliances, where different groups might have a tactical alliances with, with each other, subcontract relationships, barter agreements. So they engage, they cooperate with each other for a short period of time, and then they're either fighting each other or they're just coexisting again. And what this means is selective violence and uncertainty. Now here again, just an example from someone of Tumaco in the south of Colombia, who said, the armed actor damages the morality of civil society. They slowly beat, break the pearl, the pearl of the Pacific. So the pearl is Tumaco, that's the city. The pearl is of a very hard and beautiful material. It is already scratched, almost subtly fractured, but it starts to be really fractured. So this really shows, this is how he explained to me what happens to society in, in the city, in, in Tumaco, and what, he, what this really shows is how civil society, how the social fabric um, gets fractured or is eroded um, by the presence of these many different groups that have quickly changing alliances with each other. And what this then means to society as such, where you don't trust one another, um, where you don't um, cooperate with each other, where you don't um, engage in any um, collective action. <coughs> because the social fabric is kind of eroded, is, is fractured. So just to come back to the map I showed at the beginning, Tumaco is here at the Pacific coast, and as you can see there, there are many different um, groups present with different kinds of relationships. And this um, becomes clearer if we look at the different flows in these areas. Um, Tumaco is one of the most strategic points, starting points for the international trafficking route. What this means is that um, if we look at the drug flows, they all go from the more central areas of the country towards the coast. Um, there are other flows, for example, precursors, <coughs> adrenaline, um, certain chemicals um, that are used to process the coca into cocaine that also go their way. Gasoline flows, which is, gasoline is used as one of the um, precursors. And then obviously also arm flows. Often um, they exchange arms for drugs, so arms are coming 
from Peru via Ecuador to Colombia and then are exchanged for drugs. But in the end, um, in order to ship the drugs abroad, they all go through um, Tumaco, at least that, that area, that region. So this is why this is a very strategic point. <clears throat> now what does it mean if we look at the city as such? Um, Tumaco is made up of three major islands and what you can see there is that each group controls a certain area for a, long for a certain time or there are several groups in, in one specific um, territory. Now if someone wants to traffic um, drugs from the central areas towards um, Tumaco, one example for example is that they go um, on the um, eastern part, then one group, for example, controls the bridge, so they have to cross the bridge, they have to engage in a certain relationship, cooperate with that group that controls the bridge in order to ship, or to bring, to transport the truck on the other side. Another group might control um, the harbor area, um, another group might control um, the neighborhood in the south. So no matter where you want to go, you have to kind of either have a tactical alliances with that um, group, you have to have a subcontract relationship, for example, to um, subcontract a youth gang, who's aware of who's on whose side. Um, you have to have someone who's aware of intelligence, who knows what are the military operations, um, where is it safest, and what is the safest um, point in time in order to, to ship something abroad, um, where the stock areas. So it's very dynamic, and it's very quickly changing. And what this means is that there's a lot of intra-urban displacement. So often people might be affected by the breakdown of alliance in one neighborhood, but things are fine in another neighborhood. Now, if people know someone, if they have relatives, if they are friends in another neighborhood, they wouldn't go somewhere to a rural area because they're not trained as farmers. Um, they have their livelihoods in the city. They might be fishermen, for example. They'd rather go to um, relatives in, in another neighborhood. But this is a kind of displacement that is not very visible from the outside. It doesn't figure in, in statistics on mass displacements. It's often drop by drop. It might be one family, it might be two families. Um, and it happens um, in different um, moments in time. It's not one mass displacement, so it's not that visible um, from the outside. But it very much affects um, people on the ground because people don't know when an alliance might break down and when suddenly a new alliance is established. Now this then leads to the unpredictability of violence. You never know when something might happen. It might be that for several months or years you're fine, but then suddenly something happens. And this then leads to the disorientation of citizens. They don't really have these clear rules of behavior. They don't know who's fighting on whose side for how long. Um, so it's not just that sides are switching, but also that they're switching very often, and the supporters, the network of supporters, is also changing sides all the time. So it's very hard to, to trust someone. It's very hard to um, establish these strategies that um, help you to reduce um, the insecurity. And it means that you always have this sense of something might happen anytime, anywhere. And I think this is quite well um, reflected in, in these pictures that I took there. Now, what does it mean then um, for society, for security, if we think about it not only in terms of facts of physical security, but also in terms of perceptions? It means that, um, that on the one hand, the lines between the different violent non-state actors and citizens are blurred, and it means that this fuels mistrust and erodes the social fabric. So, there are instances like here, um, this is a um, funeral procession, um, and when I was there, I was told this is something that happens two or three times a week. Um, at that, this was in 2011, and you can see here it most likely was a young man, you see um, a football um, team, you see a taxi in front, 
so often it's taxi drivers, and this is because taxi drivers are used as, um, as informants. They circulate around the city, they know exactly what's going on, and they provide um, the information to different, um, to different groups. So the, the lines between citizens and members of the armed groups are blurred because people are subcontracted to do certain um, tasks for them. Um, this is a case of um, informants. It can also be messengers, where people are contracted to deliver messages. Um, it can also be as contract killers, um, where people are offered that job, and they are told, well, either you do that job, and we pay you, and you are part of our group, and you have a certain status. You might have the most beautiful girlfriend in the city, and you have a group of friends, or you don't do that, and then you have to leave the city. And then you have to think about, well, who cares for your family, who sustains the livelihood. So these are the options sometimes that people have because there are not many um, alternative options. So it means that often there is still some kind of trust among the um, local population, but really only at the core level, the core family. But you might not trust your neighbor. You don't really want to know what people are involved in because you don't know who is who's involved and, and who not. And this then, in the end, has an impact on society in the long run if social fabric is um, eroded because people would not work together in order to, um, to change um, things the way they have been before. And then finally, um, the last um, cluster or point is looking at long-term arrangements, so when there are very stable relationships um, between different um, violent non-state groups. And this is where we don't necessarily see this selective violence with contract killers, we don't see the mass displacements, or remember the, the graph of the statistics where the homicide rates um, went up. Um, what we see here is um, shadow citizenship and shadow um, citizen security. So there's some sense of security, but this is provided by violent non-state groups and not by the state. And people might support that group. It can be for pragmatic reasons, simply because this is the best option that they have. It can be ideologically motivated, but that's not really the point. The point is really that there's this relationship um, where we don't have violence because of um, kind of the mutually re reinforcing relationship between violent group and um, citizens. Um, the context here is often areas like these ones, um, where there's um, little infrastructure, um, they're very marginalized. Here, for example, this is the border river between um, Colombia on the north, northern side and Ecuador in the south. So you don't have streets, you don't have many um, economic opportunities. You might be able to grow um, coffee or bananas, but then you don't have streets to bring your products to the market. So this is why it might be easier to grow coca, because then someone comes to your farm and picks up um, the leaves. So it's often for very um, pragmatic um, reasons why people might um, engage in illegal economic opportunities rather than um, legal economic opportunities. Now here, also just to give you an, um, an example, someone said, um, we are in a war against the state. The state has abandoned us. And someone else said, when two neighbors have a dispute, they don't say, I'll call the police. They say, I'll call the guerrillas or I'll call the paramilitaries. This is how people threaten each other. So one thing is that people might feel abandoned by the state, but there are still um, cases where people say, well, we would like to have the state here um, because that is the better option. But then there's also this thinking that um, actually the guerrillas or the paramilitaries are more efficient and more effective um, than the state, and this is why there are instances where if something happens, they wouldn't go first to the police, they would go immediately to their local guerrilla commander because they know that um, in that way it's, it's more efficient um, 
and this is how disputes are solved, even disputes among neighbors. Um, so it establishes this kind of shadow citizenship where people would go immediately to the other um, governor in a way rather than, rather than the state. Now, what does it mean from the outside perspective? It means that often we don't really see what is going on. If we only look at displacement rates, and these are the areas that are green here, um, this was in 2010, so this shows the number of mass displacement, we would think that in the blank area, nothing happens, that there are no mass displacement, there's no violence, and things are fine. However, if we think about um, the perceptions and the other part of security, <coughs> we see that these areas are areas where there's a lot of confinement and access restrictions. So here, there are no mass displacements because people are not allowed to leave the territory, because people are told that if you talk about human rights violations, um, we might punish you. If you talk to um, an international organization, we might punish you. So it's another kind of um, insecurity that is not visible to the outside because there's confinement and because there are restrictions. And what I try to do with my research is showing that, well, if we only look at um, statistics, if we only look at the numbers of security, we don't really see what's going on in these places. So if we want to understand what happens in places where there is presence of different um, groups, but they have a relatively stable relationship, um, we have to take into account also what, what does it mean for people on the ground and how do they relate um, to these different groups. Now, what does it mean then, um, coming back to the key points that I mentioned at the beginning? Um, first of all, if there's no arrangement, so if there's violence, um, there is violence, but there also can be rules of behavior. So in a way, people can develop certain strategies in order to reduce insecurity. Um, <clears> the <throat> second point is that perceptions of insecurity erode the social fabric. And this relates um, to those areas where there might be selective violence that is not as visible as, as the mass um, um, displacement or large homicides, massacres. Um, but it really relates to those areas where there's constant uncertainty and people don't really know who to trust and that has an impact on society. And then finally, um, illusory calmness can disguise security impacts. So often we might not see that something is happening. Um, we don't really know what's going on unless we go there. But in these areas, um, people are mostly affected because they live under constant social control by these groups. They are told what to do or what not to do. Um, and they engage in this relationship um, with the different violent groups. And this is why I think there's a need um, to shift from studying ungoverned spaces to studying illicitly governed spaces. So we often tend to focus on those areas where there's lots of violence, and this is what we see in the media, and this is what the governments focus on. However, we also have to look at those illicitly governed spaces where there is presence of different groups and they govern or regulate um, everyday life in a way. Um, and this is important for the state if the state is to go back to these areas, if, if the state wants to go back to the area, these areas and is to be perceived as a legitimate and credible actor in these areas. Now, how is this relevant? Well, right now, it's very much relevant to Colombia, um, which is in peace negotiations right now. Um, it's relevant in order to think about the post-conflict strategy. So, for example, if the FARC um, is demobilized, um, it doesn't mean that we don't see these different kinds of arrangements anymore. It just means that there's one group less in the picture, but that group might be replaced by another one, or the different arrangements might shift. So, for example, if we now have an area not to Santander, where the FARC is relatively dominant, um, the relationships are stable, 
because they provide certain services to um, civil society. If they are not present anymore, there might be a power vacuum. There might be many different groups that try to replace that actor, and that might lead to a um, struggle or a fight between different groups. So that might then shift from the stable long-term arrangement to these short-term alliances, or even to the absence of an arrangement where we have an open fight. It might also go the other way around, that in an area where until now the frog um, was not that um, strong, where it was kind of fighting with others, or where it was engaging in, in, in short-term alliance, <coughs> if the frog is not there anymore, one of the other groups might become stronger and might become um, the, the preponderant group, and that might make things more stable, but not necessarily um, more controlled by the state. So it really means that there is a reshuffling of different arrangements rather than the disappearance of them. And this is very important if you want to think about, well, what can the state do? How can we actually respond um, to what's going on there? Now, it's not only relevant to Colombia. It's also relevant to other cases. And I mentioned at the beginning, there are places like um, DRC, where there are over 50 groups. There are places like Syria, where there are thousands of different groups. And just to give you one example, in, in Syria, um, <clears throat> there the alliances are very quickly shifting all the time. And what happened so far is that um, the Western governments that responded to that, they just kind of, they were always one step behind. So for example, they started to um, support one group, al-Nusra, because they thought this is in opposition to Assad. And then suddenly it turned out that they were also linked to ISIS and linked to al-Qaeda. But this was only too late because the alliance has shifted so quickly and, and governments were not really aware of that. So in a way, if we try and understand how this shifting works, and that there are these different kind of relationships, it allows us to better understand the local dynamics that in the end um, shape conflict and that in the end also shape the local um, security for, for the communities. Thank you. <laughs>